Conversations with Leaders is a podcast focused on the intersection of business and technology. In this episode, we're talking about the human side of digital transformation in government. Join Sarah Ryle from the AWS Institute as she speaks with Mike Bevan, Senior Manager of Government Transformation at AWS, about the impact that government service modernization can have on the everyday lives of citizens. I'm Sarah Ryle, and with me is Mike Bevan, who's a digital leader within the government transformation team at Amazon Web Services. Mike led modernization within the UK government and now advises national and local government leaders about how they can make their reforms work successfully. So Mike, you have talked a lot about how success comes from starting small and showing results. And what do you mean by that? Traditionally, people plan large projects over many years and they have very great aspirational goals. However, when they're doing that, they don't really understand what they're going to encounter, the sort of challenges they may face, how the organisation is going to react to it. They have very little information about the actual end users, be it citizens, be it businesses, be it internal public sector workers. So the idea of starting small enables you to actually find out a lot of really valuable information in a lower risk and a lower cost environment. So instead of starting off with a a massive transformation program, what we try and ask people to do is pick one real problem in their organisation. So typically what we see in local government in the UK today is a lot of people are struggling with accessing their data and interpreting their data. So a lot of the councils we're working with tend to be looking at small three-month projects that enable them to get insights out of their data to actually understand the problem in the first place. And then once they've done that, they might embark on some sort of program. So it's really about starting with something that you're not betting the whole organization on. You get to understand a lot of actual data points, but also a lot of cultural and people things and how process works in your organization before you set off on this big, very public, very visible operation that, you know, makes everyone nervous and everyone gets stressed and pressured by it. What you're saying is pick a few small things. I think there was a name for that, wasn't there? Uh, when you were in UK government, you actually, you was it the Exemplar Programme? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the Exemplar Programme's interesting because it it finished five, six years ago. And quite often when I talk to people who knew me from back in those days, they talk about it in its kind of end state, about this great programme and what it did. However, it didn't start anywhere like that. So what people saw was the final delivery of it in March 2015, where 20 of the 25 services got to the required level in the service assessment process. And I'll come back to why only 20 of the 25 got there. But that actually started in late 2011 with a very small team of five or six people um, who had inherited the digital controls into cabinet office, into the government digital service, and worked with probably three or four different government departments, people like Student Loans, the Driver Vehicle Licensing Agency, the Department of Work and Pensions, Carers Allowance, and the Office of the Public Guardian. Um, For those of you who don't know what that is, those are the people who grant lasting powers of attorney. So the power of attorney was a really interesting one, actually, because Office of the Public Guardian is actually a government agency that's based in Birmingham, and we had a very small team working with them. And there's a few key 
ingredients of this one, which I really like. Firstly, we had people who are very close to the coalface. I'm a great believer in the best people to solve a problem are the people closest to it. The next thing they did was they showcased that very publicly um, to the point where the actual public guardian, who's the person who leads that organisation, when they were shown the the alpha, which is like the prototype of the new service, I, I remember them saying they felt like the scales had fallen from their eyes because they could actually see what a modern digital service would look like for powers of attorney. So there were lots of little stories like that to get this thing started. But the key ingredients are really having the right people who are close to the problem and, you know, it mattered to them to solve it. They weren't parachuted in to do it having real data points of knowledge about it, being very visible in terms of what you're doing so the organisation can see it, and having the top leadership bought into that visibility. So it's a very iterative process. Why do some programmes work better than others? So I think you have to accept that most programmes are probably complex things taking place in a complex organisation in a complex world. And that's where very rigid program structures normally come undone. So if you have some fluidity in your approach, i.e. you react to the latest information and changing circumstances, but you also have some degree of autonomy. So it's not kind of we all fail or we all succeed, but you can actually have some parts work and some parts not work. So what we found on that exemplar program, that the ones that were successful didn't particularly have a set of common characteristics, but but you know the things I've talked about before. They had the leadership buy-in, they had the right people involved, but they also had the ability to kind of get on and do it. The ones that were less successful had different challenges around changing policies, um, changes of leadership within organisations, where the ones that were essentially addressing legacy type services but trying to modernize them and reimagine them in a different way it tended to be more successful so it like most things in life it depended but i think we always said that out of the 25 if we could get 20 done within two years that would be successful the five that didn't get there there was a lot of learning from those so we've talked a lot about the the programs and it's really interesting to me that what we haven't talked about at all yet is it And often people would assume that the first thing that they have to sort out if they're going to do a modernization program is the IT. They have to go and work out, you know, how they buy that. Um, And yet we've talked a lot about other things. We've talked about culture and the way of working and uh, thinking about iterating. So why do you think that is? Why, Why does IT sort of recede and and maybe not be the first place that that you go to? It's an interesting point because the, the technology can kind of be everything and nothing at the same time. So if you're building the digital world, you clearly need to have some fundamental understanding of the technology you're going to use to get there. So you need that kind of expertise within the teams. But at the same time, the technology kind of has to serve a purpose and the purpose is meeting a user need ultimately. So it comes down to a much more balanced view of it and getting away from the notion that you can write a specification and someone can produce some technology to meet that specification. Because the real challenge is that generally at the point that people write a specification, they know least about the problem space, the people who are trying to grapple with the problem space and how they might solve it. 
Uh, and a, a wiser person than me came up with the great expression that it's a good way to lock in your ignorance as early as possible into the process. So the technology that is used within these sorts of programs is, is very evident, but it kind of goes with the ebb and flow of the project. And, um, you know, the, the technical architects, the developers, the user interface sort of designers are all part of a multidisciplinary team. Um, so they're in there and they're contributing, but there's no sense of some business analysts write a specification and then give it to some technology people to create it. They're constantly bouncing off of each other and working through it. You know, you can use responsive designs and things like that to actually create a better service for people um, as opposed to letting it constrain you because you had a load of preconceived ideas when you started. And is that the ultimate goal of these programs is to create better services for people? Yeah, I think. And for me, when I when I joined the civil service in 2011, I sort of worked in banking most of my time before that. And we'd always striven to kind of create, you know, good things for um, customers in the banking world. So I'd seen some of this before, but I think the fundamental shift was turning the focus of a government project from being around what does government want from this and how do we create something and put it in front of people into what do people want from this and how do we make the service enable them to get at the things that they need from government. So it's a real shift from doing things from the inside out and doing them from the outside in. And I remember you've spoken before about a moment when you were working on the caregiver's allowance, where that was particularly apparent that the processes, whoever they were serving, they weren't really putting the user experience at the front. And I think you built backwards. Yeah, so we had um, a lot of user research on that project. So I actually went and spoke to people who were claiming carer's allowance. Um, and it's, it was quite heart-wrenching because obviously a lot of the people who were claiming this was because they were caring for a loved one who had some sort of needs or dependency on them. So there were two things that we found. One was that the very nature of the questions that we asked people took them back to the start of their pain because they were having to state why. And so that needed work to actually make those questions less raw and emotional for people. And, you know, watching the playback of some of the user research, I've seen a um, couple of hundred people in an auditorium kind of cry watching it. And secondly, it was around, you know, the importance of the digital service became really evident when we started testing it because everyone assumed that people kind of use this thing Monday to Friday, nine to five. And we actually found that the peak usage was in the middle of the night, sort of between midnight and 2, 3 a.m. because these people are all day doing stuff for someone else and it's the only time they actually get to deal with this kind of paperwork. Um, so it just made us realise that actually having a really easy, low friction to use digital service would make their lives easier because if they could do it quickly at a time that suited them, that's much better. So there really is a human side to what could sound very process-driven and tech-driven and and um, efficiency-driven. There is a very, very human impact of these modernisation programmes. Is there anything that you're either working on at the moment or or is a future development that illustrates the sort of human impact 
of these modernization programs? I mean, how, how, how much better could life be for citizens? So I think, you know, following the trends of the last almost 20 years around sort of digitization of government services, I guess, you know, going back from sort of lots of web forms in the late 90s to sort of what happened with the sort of birth of digital government around 2010, 2011. There's been a couple of things. I think the pandemic's been a great accelerator of, of adoption of you know using I don't know this these methods these these technologies and I'm was really pleased to see how particularly the UK government was able to respond to you know standing up digital services in weeks because of what he had learned over the last decade so I think seeing that embedded more and more into the fabric of public sector organizations is, is a really key thing for the future and I think Technology has almost got to the point where things like near real-time analytics and insight can start to actually drive much more responsive services to what people need. We've, we've seen that happen in a very, I guess, deliberate sense with um, we've seen councils in the UK using different data sets to identify vulnerable households during the pandemic. So they knew that they proactively had to take them food, help care, um, because they would have just sat in their houses, unfortunately, and bad things would have happened. So we've seen that happen in a kind of reactive way. But I think we're getting to the point where customers of ours are going to start wanting to do that in a proactive way so they can actually identify where the vulnerabilities are, where the patterns are, before someone comes and knocks on their door. And I think that will be really important because we can cut out, um, A, people going and kind of doing things where they're not needed because they're kind of doing it uniformly for everyone and actually being able to focus in where, you know, scarce resources exist in the public sector onto the people who need them the most. Enjoying the discussion? Share your perspective and join the conversation on our LinkedIn page at AWS Executive Connection. These are all changes that have taken place over years in the UK. And really interesting there, that point about how it was set up almost when, when the pandemic hit. The years of development really helped accelerate the response. But it is a big change, isn't it, that's taken place? And it has taken place over a number of years. Can you describe the extent of that change and the cultural change within the organisations? Yeah, it's interesting because I think the public sector lends itself more to the kind of, if, if I boil the process down to an approach of using discovery, then alpha, which is kind of prototyping, then beta, which is building a new service. And sometimes I found that to be more of a challenge in the private sector because the private sector tends to deal more in certainty. So there's certain things that are good for certain things in, say, like the insurance business. There are, you know, everyone uses this particular piece of software or whatever else because the staff move between organizations more and things like that. So they, they kind of have a much narrower and it's much more of almost like an expertise driven as opposed to a kind of research driven thing. But even I think I've, I've seen certainly over the last few years, organizations I've worked in where it's kind of starting to take some sort of hold in the, the private sector. And that's interesting because that's where it's more of a more of an internally focused 
change. So where previously maybe organizations would have said, right, we're going to do this, we're going to have a big change program, and you'll get a shiny new computer system in three years' time, I've actually been lucky enough to work with organizations that have taken on board this idea of involving their staff in kind of saying how they might want to do their jobs, what the pain points are with the current stuff, and then taking part in showcases to actually see these systems for the first time, give feedback on what they think will and won't work. And that's really interesting when you kind of get operational managers in those sorts of showcases kind of going, yeah, I can see that's going to help people. Um, and then going back to their teams and sort of saying, well, this thing's coming actually, and surprisingly, it looks quite good as opposed to what we've seen before. So I think for me, the cultural change has been one about it being much more open and much more visible um, and shifting that culture away from a sort of a top-down driven, you know, we'll get some clever people in, they'll interview half the team, they'll write it into a big document, we'll do a big procurement and hey, presto, it'll happen, to actually say, well, let's get some people in to work with us in the organisation, understand what's not working now, build something and kind of go, is that it? Is that kind of what you meant? And then kind of go, actually, mainly, but if that bit's over there and that bit's a different colour, then it might actually work better. So that it is something that I've seen creeping a bit more into the private sector out of the public sector and that comes down to again some of those ingredients about understanding that the people closest to the problem are the ones who probably know how to solve it and like having trust and empowerment in organizations but still having that clear leadership to kind of say yes i will go to things like showcases i will be vocally present at things like showcases and i will kind of you know give feedback where feedback's due because that kind of gets the the staff on board and they think they're actually getting what they need so i think you know as that kind of spreads beyond the very focused world of public sector that i've mainly known and you start to see it in private sector i think that means that organizations will actually start to you know, retain their staff better because they're actually involved in what they do. It means they might attract more talent because it's not just come here, do a fairly drudgy job and go home. And that's both in the operational and the tech roles as well. Public sector has the advantage that you can kind of create some kind of movement or belief, which I think is particularly prevalent in local government. A lot of the local government customs I work with are looking to sort of create communities because they tend to have tech professionals. Uh, London Borough Hackney is a great example where they are, they are building open source, they're building on cloud, but they're really trying to attract a hub of people who kind of say, come and work for us for a couple of years, uh, do some great stuff for your community, build better public services. You may then want to go and work for an investment bank, but that's okay because you've done, you've done your bit for the public sector and you've learned some really great skills. And I think one of the really interesting things is that, and people often get a misconception between public and private sector, but a lot of the more interesting stuff kind of happens in the public sector because you've got, you know, scarcity of, of money, scarcity of people, real, real life challenges to solve for people. You know, you're not just streamlining how to process a credit card application. You're actually helping people get money to feed themselves or clothe their children. So, yeah, the real challenges are there in public sector and people can really learn some amazing skills. And then if they want to go and do stuff with their careers, but the way particularly local government bodies can attract that little sort of digital hub within their own communities is a real great thing we're starting to see emerge now. Well, that's really interesting and, and presumably emerge in more than one 
place. So almost like little, little pods of expertise that, that attract other people. And when you talk about showcases, can you, can you describe what a showcase Certainly. is? Yeah. I'm assuming everyone's ever been to one. So basically you should have a cadence of around two weeks. So two week sprints, sort of fairly typical agile things that anyone's familiar with that whole um, sort of terminology. So at the end of each sprint, you should have created something of value and you get everyone in a room and you show people what that thing of value is. So going back to that um, private sector example I was talking about earlier, the people on the team, and by the people on the team, I don't mean some IT folks or some business folks, but both would actually stand up, put up on a screen and go, right, this is what we've done this week. So it's it's showing the actual software, letting people see it, letting people feedback on it straight away. And also they can obviously feedback later on, but it just gives that real sense that stuff is happening and there's there's a cadence. And you know, people actually start to believe it rather than seeing sort of a set of PowerPoint slides with graphs on them once a month uh, and the hope that it's all going to happen in June next year type of thing, which is what we'd seen a lot of before. And does this tend to speed up the implementation as well of programmes? You know, because classically we'd hear about transformation programmes, they generally ran over time, they generally ran over budget. Do you get a different result by by working in this sort of showing and iterating and delivering results as you go? There's a couple of fundamental benefits that go with it. One, that if people have been engaged in that process and they've seen the thing evolve and grow, you don't have to send them off on a six-week training course at the end of it because they kind of know what they're getting um, and it's been built to help them do their job. It's not been built by someone who's never done that job, who read a document that was written by someone else who had never done that job either, and then kind of tested by someone who's paid to be a tester as opposed to someone who's going to use it. So it's very um, almost like intuitive to the people once they actually get their hands on it because they've kind of had some say and direct input into it and they know what it's going to look like. Uh, so that's one big benefit is, is the kind of adoption and take up and usage which stops people then creating their own little shadow IT industries around it as well. So that's one good thing. The other good thing is that you kind of deliver value very early on. So on this particular project, um, what happened is that there were particular points where enough of it had been built to kind of cut over to, to the new stuff. But what was kind of key around that was that they'd managed to alleviate something like 60% of their risk within sort of 18 months into the project where they would have typically have waited two to three years and tried to implement it all on one weekend when everyone kind of gets extremely nervous. And because I've done enough of those projects as well, where you'll go home on a Friday and hope you've all still got jobs by Monday evening type of thing. So, so they avoided that whole big bang approach brought forward the actual business value in replacing legacy systems and then taking the risk out of their business. So in terms of adoption and value delivery, it's really key. If I were, you know, a council and you've been advising me, what typical questions do you get up at the end? What typically do people ask you? Where do I sign? How do I start? <laughs> that sounds great. I want to do that. I think what we normally try and start with is just kind of setting some context. Yeah. Because, you know, organisations all start from different places. They all want to go different places and they have different levels of ambition. So I'm always very, very mindful of those three factors because, you know, I mentioned London Borough of Hackney. They, they have a very clear vision and they have chosen to attract 
technical ability into their organization. Not every council is in that situation or has that level of ambition because maybe the leaders within that haven't been exposed to working in that type of way, so are less comfortable with it. So I think the first thing we normally try and answer for them are just some of those questions, like what does this look like and how are we going to feel and and what are we going to be doing? And that's a bit almost like second-guessing things for them because there's nothing worse than turning up and putting post-it notes all over the wall and kind of, or if you could in this day and age, but, but you know, exposing to areas where they suddenly don't feel comfortable because they don't understand why you're doing it that way, you know, what kind of process or methodology you're following. So if someone says, what should we do next? We'd normally say we'll do a session where we'll just talk you through some of these ways of working and what they look like and what they feel like and what they'll do for you just to kind of get them comfortable and then the next thing really is is to say to them, you know, just find a real problem that you've got and then let's let's try and solve it in a meaningful way. And it needs to be a meaningful operational problem, not, you know, some sort of interesting little side project because otherwise it doesn't carry weight. You know, and people will think, well, that's fascinating, but we didn't need to do it anyway. But if it actually, you know, helps these organisations get their very scarce people, money, to the front line. And that's, for me, has got to be the real driver behind it. And actually important probably to say as well that an organisation doesn't necessarily have to have all of the skills themselves at the beginning. There are people who can come in and help them, aren't there? There are, uh, you know, hundreds of small, medium-sized expert um, providers of, of this sort of this sort of knowledge that can work alongside organisations in the public sector whilst they get the skills and the approaches that they need. They don't have to go from naught to 60. Yes. And I think, it, again, we used to, one of our GDS mantras was don't do everything yourself because you can't. And um, it's about getting the balance right, probably through much of the 90s and noughties government have very much had a diet of outsourcing which is the opposite end of the extreme where you just give it to someone else and have a very complex contract to manage it through but this approach is much more about sort of partnership and working with people um so the exemplar program had a whole host of generally sort of small medium enterprise type organizations that we worked with uh and i think the the team i had was probably around sort of 50 to 60% civil servants, probably 20% kind of contractors, yeah, just individual people, and then about 20% made up of sort of partners who we worked with from sort of firms. So, and that kind of reflected across the sort of the projects that ran out of that as well. And today, I think um, about 50% of government work is now delivered by small, medium enterprises working with government. So, yeah, that's been one of the interesting seed changes of working in this way, that it's it's enabled these smaller businesses to actually work with government and get their expertise in there. As before, there was probably, I don't know, somewhere around 15 to 20 large multinationals who only ever did work for government. So it's really, it's really great and beneficial from a point of view of skills and speed, you know, not to, as you said, in government digital service, do it all yourself, you can't. How can you manage the the risk involved in outsourcing work? So I think it, it's a very different model to outsourcing where you you kind of contract for capability. Um, you, you don't contract to 
to outcomes that then you kind of ask your supplier to own. So that that's a kind of a fundamental shift. So you you retain ownership and set direction. The partner works with you and for you on that and brings to it sometimes its capacity, sometimes its capability, depending on the particular problem. Sometimes it could be both, depending on the sort of problem you're trying to solve. But what it does do is it breaks things into much smaller chunks uh, and into much shorter timescales of delivery, which means you've got much more opportunity to kind of course correct before you spend a lot of money. So if you're doing something like a discovery and it, you're contracting someone to do that with you over a 12-week period, it's a much smaller investment, there's much less risk involved in it, and you've got the opportunity to kind of you know pivot, re, you know, reiterate whatever terminology you want to use, rather than saying this is a five-year project, there's you know, multi-millions of pounds on the table and we'll have some big stage gates that we'll work on once a year. So it's all about, I think, chunking it down into smaller packages, having much more control and the fundamental acceptance that, you know, you will react to the data and insight you get as you progress through this thing, as opposed to saying in five years time, we'll probably try and deliver something we needed two years ago. And those are the sorts of projects that can get you into that type of trouble as you kind of say, we have um, a problem we want to solve um, and we're going to go and work out how to solve it. Uh, and the thing that we create to solve it, we don't really know what it is yet. We've got to work that out as we go along. And that way of working is far less risky. It sounds very transparent. It sounds very practical. And it sounds like you can back out of something if it's not working. Yes. Because you can see what's working. Yeah, or not working. So show the thing. Yes. <laughs> All right, Mike, that's been really interesting. Thank you so much for that insight. And there are lots more stories about successful public sector transformation from all over the world. Just search AWS Institute online. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Leaders, brought to you by AWS Executive Insights. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us spread the word by subscribing, rating, and leaving us a review on your favorite podcatcher. For more public sector insights, visit aws.amazon.com institute.